At least 22 people dead in a single day. With quarantine orders still locking down Xinjiang, locals blame the losses on lacking food and medical care. Chinese and U.S. foreign ministers meet in New York. Their first face-to-face -face talk since President Biden said the U.S. would defend Taiwan against an invasion. Florida's governor working to counter the Chinese communist regime, taking aim at foreign influence and espionage with a new order. And a treasury official taking aim at Beijing, the world's largest creditor. He says China's failure to act could impact low- and middle-income countries. Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Chen Wu, in for Tiffany Meyer. At least 22 people dead in a single day. It happened last week in China's northern Xinjiang area on September 15th. Locals are blaming it on the region's COVID-19-driven lockdown and the lack of food and medical care because of it. U.S.-based news platform Radio Free Asia confirmed the deaths with local police and the victims' families. Yining City is home to around half a million residents, mainly members of the Uyghur ethnic group. The city has been under lockdown since early August. Last week, police detained over 600 people for staging a protest against the restrictions. Most of those arrested were young Uyghurs. Videos of the incident later appeared on social media, with locals saying they're struggling to get food and medicine, and that some have had family members starve to death. The videos were deleted soon after. Radio Free Asia reached out to the local police and tried to verify the claims posted in the videos. City police confirmed at least 22 people had died of starvation there on September 15th. Responding to the same question, one official said 20 had died without giving further details. They asked the reporter not to call again. Another official from the city's emergency response station said the figure was 22. One Uyghur refugee who is living in Turkey was notified of his father's passing last week. His father was another of those who starved to death on the 15th. The son told Radio Free Asia that due to lockdown orders, his father couldn't get to a hospital and starved to death. He also noted his father had previously been held in a detention camp from 2017 to 2019. On the sidelines of the United Nations gathering in New York, Secretary of State Antony Blinken met with the Chinese Communist Party's foreign minister. This is the first time the two have spoken face-to-face -face since President Biden said the U.S. would defend Taiwan against a Chinese invasion. NTD's Jason Perry has a story. While at the United Nations General Assembly, Secretary of State Antony Blinken met with Chinese Communist Party Foreign Minister Wang Yi. Just the day before, Wang said the Taiwan issue was growing into the biggest risk in China-U.S. relations in a speech to the Asia Society think tank in New York. This was the first time the two leaders met since President Biden said he would use U.S. forces to defend Taiwan in an interview on 60 Minutes. So unlike Ukraine, to be clear, sir, U.S. forces, U.S. men and women, would defend Taiwan in the event of a Chinese invasion. Yes. The White House walked back Biden's remarks the next day, preserving the policy of strategic ambiguity. And on Friday, at the United Nations, China and the United States got a chance to clear things up. Blinken expressed to Wang that the United States is committed to maintaining peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait, consistent with the long-standing One China policy. Blinken also met with leaders from the Quad. 
I think our four countries know very well that the significant challenges that we face, as well as the opportunities that are before us, demand more than ever uh, that we work together. The four leaders attended a signing ceremony of the Humanitarian Assistance and Disaster Relief Guidelines. Jason Perry, NTD News. Florida is taking steps to block influence from hostile foreign nations, especially China. Governor Ron DeSantis signed an executive order on Thursday that will prohibit companies tied to these countries from getting technology and services in Florida. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has more. Along with the executive order Thursday, Governor DeSantis announced further measures to be proposed in the next legislative session. Clearly, when you're talking about the CCP and you're talking about countries like that, uh, we need to have some distance there and we need to have a layer of protection for the people of Florida. The proposed legislation will address cybersecurity, real estate, and academia. Florida has seven countries of concern on its list. Those countries are China, Cuba, Russia, Iran, North Korea, Syria, and Venezuela. The measures aim to make it harder for these countries to engage in espionage or influence operations within Florida's borders. The first measure will prohibit state and local governments from contracting with companies owned, controlled, or based in China and other foreign countries of concern if the contract provides access to Floridians' personal information. So this is things like social security numbers, it's things like your bank account information, and it's things like your medical records. That should not be in the hands of the Chinese Communist Party. The second will stop China and other maligned countries from purchasing agricultural land in Florida and land close to military bases in the Sunshine State. The third action DeSantis announced will forbid Florida universities and their staff from accepting gifts from any individual or entity affiliated with China or other countries hostile to American interests. DeSantis also mentioned the Chinese regime's role in the COVID pandemic, their efforts to cover up the origin of the virus, and the part they play in manufacturing and shipping fentanyl to drug cartels in Mexico that run it into the U.S. across the southern border. He says he will continue the course to combat CCP influence and stand strong against their ideology. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. For the first time in three decades, certain Southeast Asian countries are growing their economies faster than China. That's according to a study done by Asian Development Bank and released earlier this week. The report says China's economic growth is expected to total 3.3% this year, much lower than in years before the pandemic. The low estimate is largely pinned on China's zero-COVID policy, on the backdrop of a slowing global economy. And there are still more risks ahead. China's financial system, especially smaller banks in the real estate market, are grappling with losses. And that's keeping consumer demand lukewarm. On the other hand, countries like Vietnam and the Philippines are enjoying more dynamic growth. That's as they open up and loosen their pandemic-related restrictions. They're also benefiting from another trend, how companies are beginning to shift their operations out of China and into other parts of Asia. Vietnam's GDP is set to grow 6.5% this year, and the Philippines is expected to reach 6.5%. A top advisor to U.S. Treasury Secretary is taking aim at Beijing. He criticized the regime for being slow on reconstructing its debt. This with China being the world's largest creditor. Here's a closer look. A Treasury official is criticizing China for being slow on reconstructing its loans. The consular Brent Neyman said China's failure to act could burden low- and middle-income countries. 
China now stands as the world's largest official creditor, meaning countries owe more money to China than to the World Bank, International Monetary Fund, and all Paris Club official creditors combined. And it's a huge amount of debt. Right now, over 40 countries owe the equivalent of over 10% of their GDP to China. That's despite China claiming to be a developing country. China isn't a developing country. China is an extremely rich, wealthy country in certain parts of it. But only if you're a Communist Party member, or the son or, or grandson or daughter of a Chinese Communist Party member. There are regions of China where the population is intentionally kept below the poverty level. But it is a wealthy, wealthy country, and this is. Frankly, an element of,、uh, of of international power, they are exercising power. They are loan sharking around the world, is what they're doing. Marcos describes China's lending practices as loan sharking.、Uh, the reason I call it loan sharking is they're going to places that can't get a loan by walking into up to the service counter of an international bank and saying. We would like to take out a loan to finance this project or that project. China will go to a country and say, "Listen, here we can give you three billion dollars to build a port, and you can pay it off over forty years at usurious rates, very high interest rates. And if you, for any reason, fail to pay, then we will simply take over ownership of the port, and we will end up owning that port in your country." He noted that loans from Beijing come with strings attached. Well, let's let's imagine that China、uh, increases its threats to Taiwan, for example. Let's imagine that it actually attacks Taiwan. Any country that assists the United States in assisting Taiwan would then have their loans called due immediately. They would have they would face immediate financial pressure. He said, at the same time, America's standing in the international market is weakening. To remedy the situation, Marcos says the U.S. needs to become energy independent and boost financial security. Hong Kong appears to be gradually moving away from Beijing's strict zero COVID-19 policy. To keep businesses going in the global financial hub, the city is easing its quarantine rules for incoming travelers. Let's zoom in. I want to. Reduce the inconvenience as much as possible. On Friday, Hong Kong's chief executive John Lee announced the city would no longer require travelers to quarantine in hotels starting Monday. Instead, they'll only be subject to three days of at-home monitoring and several virus tests in the day after they arrive. There's also another change: travelers will also no longer need a negative PCR test within 48 hours before boarding a plane. The city will only require a rapid antigen test taken within 24 hours of takeoff. For nearly two years, Hong Kong has aligned with mainland China's quarantine policy that put travelers in isolation in hotels for up to 21 days. Because of it, some companies have moved their offices out of the city and shifted to countries like Singapore. With border restrictions around the world largely reopened, businesses are urging Hong Kong to do the same. Oh, definitely happy.、Uh, like I said, Hong Kong is—it's about time to open up.、Um, we need to stay competitive on the global markets,、uh, jobs—you、um, know—get the economy going. I'm looking forward to traveling again. It's been years, and you know, I need—I want to go home to Taiwan, to America, to see my family. Yeah. 
Some high-profile events are set to be held in the city in the coming months, like an international banking summit and the Rugby Sevens tournament. Coming up, some experts say American companies have become subservient to Beijing. Yanya Kellogg, host of American Thought Leaders, sat down with leading China expert Clyde Prestowitz to break down the issue and talk about how to stop it. Clyde Prestowitz led the first U.S. trade mission to China in the 1980s. He makes the case for bringing manufacturing back to America to level the playing field with China. The world is shifting its view of the Chinese Communist Party. But how did it start, and how serious is Beijing's threat really? At the National Conservatism Conference in Miami, Yanya Kellick, host of American Thought Leaders, discussed the issue with leading China expert Clyde Prestowitz. He led the first U.S. trade mission to China in the 1980s. He's also the author of The World Turned Upside Down, America, China, and the Struggle for Global Leadership. Here's what he had to say. You know, something that's happened within the last year is Russia invades Ukraine, the Russia-Ukraine war. I guess a shift in focus, if you will. I think, you know, prior to that, people were very, were a lot more focused on China, but now, you know, Russia, Ukraine, Russia, Ukraine. I think that the Russian invasion, which, as you said, Xi Jinping had kind of signed off. He, he met with Putin before Putin gave the order. Obviously, the two of them said they had a no-limit friendship. And uh, so she gave the, the okay. Putin made his move. And on the one hand, the Putin move sent a shock through Europe. Uh, and because she was attached to that shock, it also shifted the European attitude toward China. Uh, the Europeans began to see, oh, wow, these Chinese have been telling us that they're good guys, but they're not such good guys. Uh, and so a lot of the negative reaction to Putin has also rubbed off on China and on Xi Jinping. Um, I also think, interestingly, that um, I've been surprised by the European reaction. We still have to wait for the winter to see if the Europeans continue to hang tough. But so far, the Europeans have been hanging much tougher than I thought they would. Uh, and interestingly, that's particularly true by the countries like Poland and uh, Estonia and Lithuania, who were occupied by the Russians. They know what it's like to be under the Russian rule. They don't want it. Uh, and they're sending that message to the rest of the European Union, which I think is very powerful. Japan at the same time. I mean, Japan has never been uh, a, a warm and friendly relationship with Russia. Uh, and the Russian uh, role here, combined with the threat that China poses to Japan, has also woken the Japanese up. And so the Japanese are now doubling their national defense expenditure, they're uh, loosening up on their willingness to participate in joint military operations. So this has been really a sea change from what we've been used to over the past 40 years. Well, and but what about this other element where, you know, basically because of, you know, 
a larger proportion of accounts now being settled in non-dollar currency. What is the impact of that? Dollar issue is interesting. It'll be, I'm skeptical that, that the Chinese and the Russians will be able to establish a viable non-dollar system. I'm skeptical because neither the RMB, the yuan, the Chinese currency, nor the ruble are reserve currencies, and they're not reserve currencies for good reasons. And so if you're going to set up an alternative system without a reserve currency, uh, you know, I, 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 you got to prove that to me. But um, from my perspective, if they were able to do it, I don't think it would be entirely bad for the U.S. On the one hand, it would reduce our ability to apply this kind of financial retaliation. On the other hand, it would force us to balance our own trade. And it would force us to bring more production into the U.S. to reduce our dependence on China and other uh, suppliers and bring the jobs and the technology and the production back to the U.S. So I don't think they can do it, but if they can do it, it doesn't worry me too much. It's a very fascinating perspective to be. And I mean, maybe just explain sort of the implications of, of these not being reserve currencies. Okay, I'll, I mean, my my theory is that China might eventually, you know, take Russia to the cleaners with this well, exchange, you know, right? China is not a reserve currency because if you're Chinese, you live in China, you cannot just go buy dollars. If the Chinese government removed that repression, if they said, hey, the market is open, you want to get dollars, fine. All of the money in China would rush into dollars. There wouldn't be any RMB. So another question, there's you know, considerable Chinese and frankly other investment in American real estate, American land, land that has suspected national security issues right. uh, related to it. For example, near military bases. So what is the significance of that in your mind? Well. One of the things that bothers me in the U.S.-China relationship is the, the uh, ignorance of the U.S. side on the extent of and the, um, the limits to which the Chinese will go to obtain intelligence. So the Chinese have been buying up land near American bases. That land is not being bought uh, in order to grow wheat. Uh, they're watching the bases. Um, and when we talk about intelligence, we, we just kind of automatically tend to think, oh, intelligence, okay, that's what the CIA does, or that's what the military does. It's true in the U.S., but in China, it's done by all of them are doing intelligence. Uh, you know, there was a figure, a, a number thrown out last week that China spends more money on domestic security than it does on its army, navy, and, and military security. Well, all of that effort that's being made on domestic security is, is gathering intelligence. And, and um, you know, if you think about the hacking that has been done, I'm sure that your insurance company or your bank or somebody has sent you a message saying, oh my God, we've been hacked. Well, yeah, China has gathered up millions, maybe billions, categories of classified 
information. So they know your name, they have your social security number, they know your telephone number. People that we would think are not critical in any way, but the Chinese are gathering that information. There's still this huge push, especially from some of these, you know, from the Black Rocks, from some of the hedge funds, to push massive amounts of capital into China through tie it to index funds even given this reality, right? And right. so they, you know, they're basically saying, we think this is, these are great well, growth they opportunities. Have been. I think my, I sense that there has been kind of a, a pullback from that. Um, Ray Dalio hasn't uh, raised the Chinese flag in the last several months. Uh, and um, I think that reality is beginning to also make itself felt on Wall Street. Uh, and... Um, what I really would like to see is uh, some legislation that would prevent investment by index funds of uh, any money that is coming to individuals, say through Social Security or government pensions. I don't think that U.S. government money, U.S. government source money ought to be being invested in, in the Chinese market. Uh, and uh, I think that message is beginning to be read, but I would like to see it kind of clamped and stamped. Yeah, I mean, and to your point, you know, I talked about this on the show three years ago. I remember this, the military thrift savings fund, uh, you know, basically the, the pensions of the veterans in the military right, right. are, there's many. Yeah, I mean, the, the irony of a, of a Korea vet who's fought in Chinese and Korea and his pension is investing in China. Give me a break. Well, no, exa exactly. And so this is, but it's, we're, we're three years down the road and that still hasn't changed no. bizarrely somehow, no. right? Right. And these are, some of these companies are actually companies that are actively, you know, Chinese military yeah. involved companies. Yeah. Yeah. You think that maybe they will decide to get out of the lockdowns and pin them on Xi? It's very hard for me to imagine that the and Xi Jinping has to have a lot of enemies in China. He's put a lot of people in jail. So he has to have a lot of enemies. And if he's going to strangle China with these lockdowns, you know, the enemies, you have to imagine that the enemies are going to try to take some action. <laughs> so we'll see how it plays out. To watch the full interview, check out American Thought Leaders on Epoch TV at theepochtimes.com slash epochtv. Or click the link down below if you're watching online. That's all for today's China in Focus. I'm Chenny Wu. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocus at ntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching and have a nice weekend.